0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast.
1: You're listening to the UAE's
0: number one talk radio station.
2: This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. You are listening to Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. On today's show, we were talking about how to overcome imposter syndrome. You might be surprised just how many people struggle with this, even those in successful, high-profile, high-achieving roles but how can you overcome it? Speaking to certified emotional intelligence coach, Dr. Birchess-Frank Fahl, with her insights and taking your questions too. Also in conversation with not one, but two surgeons, one specializing in orthopedics and an award-winning heart surgeon who's performed more than 10,000 operations. And celebrating diversity in Dubai with the creative force behind one brand new book, plus your social media marketing plan for 2024. We had the unicorn herself, Alex, from House of Social on hand. We're talking about how emotional intelligence can help you overcome feelings of inadequacy. Imposter syndrome, it's been bandied around, but what does it mean and how can it affect us? How can it hold us back? Joined now, um, Dr. B, Dr. Beatrice frank Fowl is in the studio. She's a member of three, a former scientist and academic, and she's a certified emotional intelligence coach. Before getting into this topic, she worked in science and academic research, had a PhD in microbiology. I mean, everything from researching the impact of climate change in the Arctic, permafrost to exploring the limits of life in extreme environments, geothermal mud pools, but we've got her in the studio to a slightly less exotic location. Um, She's now here as a professional coach and talks about the importance of emotional intelligence to support people in various roles, executives, entrepreneurs and parenting too. So you're the perfect person to hold our hand through this topic, B, How are you? I'm good thank you thank
1: you Can, for having me. My pleasure. Can I ask
2: you then when you think about your your goals with coaching why you've gone from this you know field of research and you know going to the you know Antarctic and mud pools in New Zealand to finding purpose helping others what what is your why what's your what's your mission with that? That's a really good question.
1: So I guess this this wanting to help others or to communicate Whatever I knew with others already was, um, as a scientist and as an academic, was present in teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought I wanted to uh, pursue a career in teaching after that. However, um, through also personal reasons and and personal kind of growth and challenges, parenting was a major, major challenge. Mm-hmm. Moving countries with a young baby, um, having to redefine yourself in your career – There was a lot of introspection um, and as the good scientist that I am I do a lot of research so I accumulated all this knowledge and eventually I thought you know this has been so helpful for me and it's it's time to pass it on to others and this discovery of emotional intelligence is really something a friend gave me a book and it kind of clicked and from then on it just became my thing. What is it to your mind? How, How do you define emotional intelligence and I guess how it relates to imposter syndrome? Mm. So, to me, emotional intelligence, it's not something airy fairy. You know, some people well, there, say. This is the
2: thing. I, yeah. And, and yeah, this is what I want to ask you as a scientist when you're talking
1: about the importance of data points in research, yeah. you can anchor it. There. You can. So, EQ, emotional intelligence, is something that you can measure and you can measure it in time and you can see it grow. So, it's a set of skills. Um, most people will be familiar with empathy or practicing optimism or, like you said, this why, you know, having a sense of purpose, uh, your emotional vocabulary that's a part of EQ. Um, navigating emotions, all those things are actually skills that you can measure and that you can see grow as you become aware and start practicing.
2: Now, can I ask you to put your parent hat on? Because when we mm-hmm. think about, you know, we want to be raising our children to be, and this is very much related to imposter syndrome, which we're going to be exploring later. But, you know, what are the things that parents can do to foster a sense of emotional intelligence in their children? Whether that is, as you you know, talked about there, you know, naming, naming feelings, identifying that, being able to
1: empathize, with people, what what can we be doing? Mm. So it's, I, I'm a firm believer, it's not what you say, it's what you do. The best thing you can do is work on yourself. So you, you actually work on your own emotional intelligence, your self-awareness, and you start to understand your own patterns. And with this own personal work, you are less likely to pass on some of these automatic reactions, some of this baggage to your children. There, I think children are born naturally emotionally intelligent. Up to, I think, to the age of seven or eight, children are actually able to know where their emotions, where they feel them in their body, and then they lose this. And this is something we lose, and and we should reconnect with. So they are already um, emotionally intelligent.
2: When you talk about working on yourself, I think it
1: takes a huge amount of
2: what well, time um, and willingness to zoom out, to perhaps acknowledge that the way that you have moved around the world perhaps isn't working for you or indeed isn't going well for you with other people as well. But how? What are some of the questions you can ask or the exercises you can do to ascertain your level of emotional intelligence?
1: Um, There's a number of things you can do. First of all, you can educate yourself and start to self-reflect. If you really want to measure it, um, I work with tools that actually measure it. So it's an online EQ questionnaire. It's really easy to take. And you get actual um, amounts. And it's not so much about a score. You're not trying to grade yourself <laughs> you're or anything. Not like I am,
2: like, I am top of the class. <laughs> no, exactly.
1: It is what you're trying to do is get a snapshot of where are you today and what are your strengths mm-hmm. and how can you use these strengths to maybe address the areas that are less developed. So there are no weaknesses. It's just, you know, little seeds that maybe haven't been watered and yet.
2: And then what are the benefits of knowing what you need to work on? How can that have a direct impact on personal and professional life? What have you seen with clients? So
1: um, maybe you've heard we all have a blind spot that is as big as you know the shape of us basically Mm -hmm. it's basically working on that blind spot um so once you become more self-aware you everything starts to improve your relationships start to improve and you 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 become aware that you have a choice so you don't react and just kind of go into the automatic reactions that are sometimes not useful you actually choose to respond in a way that is beneficial for you and for others Okay, we are going to be talking about imposter syndrome next. A deeply
2: unscientific poll, Doctor B would be appalled by my on social media. Over ninety percent of you saying you have been affected by imposter syndrome. We're going to be talking next about just how common it is. It, where does it come from, and the importance of a growth mindset. Delving into imposter syndrome this hour about how cultivating your emotional intelligence can help you overcome the feelings of inadequacy that so many of us, judging by the text line and polls and, well, what the data says, which we're going to be exploring next, so many of us suffer from. Dr. Beatrice Frankweiler is with us today. She is a mum of three, former scientist and academic, and currently works as a certified emotional intelligence EQ coach. So when we're talking about imposter syndrome, what exactly do we mean by?
1: by it. Can we nail it down? Yes. So imposter syndrome is basically this feeling that you are not qualified for something, that you're a fraud and you're going to be found out despite proof evidence of the contrary, despite high qualifications, a lot of achievements. You know, there's no external reason, but there's this this nagging feeling on the inside. There's been a mistake. I'm not supposed to be here, and they're going to find out very soon. So, how
2: does that manifest in terms of behavior? Is it something you could recognize in someone else, or is it very much
1: an internal thing that you know you might never share with anybody? Well, that's the interesting thing. So, if I can give you two examples that will probably surprise you, Maya Angelou, she published eleven books. She's won multiple prestigious awards, and she described herself as. I've run a game on everybody, and they're going to find me out. Oh, this gave me goosebumps. And Albert Einstein. I mean, <laughs> Albert Einstein, for me as a scientist, you know, the, one of the fathers of modern physics said um, he described himself as an involuntary swindler whose work didn't deserve as much attention as it had received.
2: Wow. So, so clearly. No one is immune to this. No one is
1: immune to it. And that's the interesting thing. I mean, you took an informal poll. There have been some um, proper scientific studies done on this, and it was the... Um, Uh, a journal of behavioral science, who basically said at least 70% of people suffer from imposter syndrome at some point in their life. So it's not like an inherent trait. Mm -hmm. It's just certain situations arise where you suddenly doubt your abilities. So are there any genders, cultures, ages or stages where you might
2: be more prone to this? Beatrice?
1: Yes. So uh, originally, it was described as something, uh, a phenomenon. So it was actually, it's not a syndrome. A syndrome makes it sound like you have a disease or something is wrong. It's not. It's more a phenomenon that was first described by two um, clinical um, psychologists, um, Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, and a group of women They were observing their students who were in a really good university, but they kept coming to them and telling them, sharing these feelings of uh, feeling inadequate and like they were not good enough. And maybe even the university had made a mistake, the admissions, in in letting them in. So despite their good grades, and they started to see this pattern emerging of these women. So it was first described as something um, that is is touching women only, but since then – it's become very clear. It goes across all genders, races, you know, backgrounds, and it's usually more prevalent in high achievers. So in academics or people in high performance jobs.
2: (laughs) Here I am surrounded by buttons going, I don't really know
1: what many of these do. (laughs) Probably, probably other people that should be
2: sitting here who know what they do. Um, Have you been affected by imposter syndrome? That's just going, yes, yes, yes. One's saying, of course, several situations and jobs. Um, I want to ask how this kind of, where it comes from, really. And it was interesting. I was listening to a podcast with Catherine Ryan, the comedian the other day, and she was talking about where her sense of confidence comes from. And she said that she was raised in her mum, literally every situation they found themselves in, you know, you could do that job. You could do that if you wanted to. If you worked hard enough, that could be you. And it was instilled in her from a very early age that nothing was beyond her capabilities and that she belonged in every single room that she decided to put herself in so you know with as, as parents do we have a role
1: to play there and is it ever too late absolutely so uh, there is um the, the your childhood the where you grew up and in what environment plays a big role because if your worth was somehow tied to your academic performance or to any kind of performance then you have you know it's a bit this fixed mindset of i am only worthy when i perform when i have high scores high grades Um, whereas if you're brought up in in more of a a growth mindset environment, then you rely on some intrinsic qualities that will always be there to tackle a challenge no matter how big. So it's really about um, where was the emphasis put on. And and like you said, this question of confidence. Confidence plays a big role um, within imposter syndrome, but it's not the only thing. So there's an internal bit, there's an external bit as well that we can see later, and um, it ties also to kind of your sense of purpose. Okay. When you said growth mindset, would you mind explaining what you mean by that? So instead of uh, fixed mindset is, is believing that you know we we're inherently intelligent, for example, or not, and things cannot change. So things are fixed. So I'm like I'm I'm a terrible singer, for example, or I'm an amazing singer. But then one day I go to a concert and I hit a horrible note, and that's the end, and that shoots my confidence down because I'm no longer an amazing singer. And it shakes your so, sense of identity. Yes, okay. and resilience is a really really big piece here because growth mindset gives you this resilience. It's basically this this understanding that. Every time you stumble, and every challenge helps you grow. So failure is not an op- uh, not a, it's not failure is not an option. On the contrary, failure is a it's a lesson.
2: Do you ever listen to the How to Fail podcast?
1: Um, sometimes, oh, okay. and yeah.
2: I think that's I think that's really important because what Elizabeth Day does with that podcast is she puts people of note, people like you know modern day you know Albert Einstein's and you know celebrities, people in the public eye, who I think most people go, oh my goodness they are so successful. How could they have ever had any sense of self-doubt? And it examines the three failures in their life and what they've learned from them. And the kind of tagline is, you know, failing teaches us how to succeed better. Exactly. But that's a big lesson. I think that comes with a bit of maturity as well to realise that. It does. So with growth mindset, is it a case of, and it's not about being so naive to go, I, you know, (laughs) I can't do that yet about everything. Mm. You know, like, like I'm not a national yet. Um, But this idea of things are possible and with hard work, with dedication, with support, with help, things are more possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All
2: right. We've got lots to talk about this afternoon. Lots of questions coming in on this. We've had messaging. saying, what do you call when you feel like you're underappreciated and you deserve more, but the environment's not helping you in those circumstances? We've had a message about um, saying, good timing. I've been invited to apply for a promotion with a 30% pay increase, but genuinely don't feel like I'm capable. Worry that if I apply and don't get it, my professional reputation will be ruined along with my confidence. Um, So I wanted to ask you about obviously that parenthood piece, but it is 2024. What about social media? How does that contribute to this idea of feeling like an imposter or that not good enough mentality? Mm,
1: So it's funny because it reminds me of something you had said in a previous show. I think that people, we see our insights, but we judge or we compare ourselves ourselves to other people's outsides yeah so it's about this highlight reel right absolutely we're constantly bombarded with images of people you know having a great time succeeding the best parenting experts the best career experts linkedin linkedin (laughs) instagram facebook everywhere i mean ted talks even and youtube and and it either gives you a boost and confidence or it can make you feel like well, I'm completely inadequate because I'm far from this and mm-hmm. it's it's not representative of real life. So we don't show the hard bits and people don't talk about the hard bits. People don't talk about, I feel like a total failure sometimes, even though I have a successful business and I'm well known. And you know what? Everybody mm-hmm. actually at some point in their life is going to feel like an imposter. Uh, so let's actually, show it more.
2: We should show it more because that's where the real connection happens with people, with community. It's where the real growth Comes from Mm. as well. Message asking Is there a connection between having imposter syndrome and being humble? Interesting. We're going to come to that. Dr. Bish is with us today. According to the data, around 70% of us will experience imposter syndrome at some point in our lives. I suspect that's a bit conservative, um, judging by the messages we've got coming in and joining us in studio to guide us through this topic. And of course, take my questions. But most importantly, yours is Dr. Beatrice Frankvall. She is a emotional intelligence coach. She's got a PhD in microbiology and takes, as you'd expect, a scientific approach to dealing with this. And helping with this, we've had messages asking about how much coaching is needed, about all sorts of different takes and questions. Should we go to the text line? Yes, please. Okay. Um, A message from Melissa saying, um, I think imposter syndrome is the flight response and the body producing adrenaline. So what do you know about the physiology of it?
1: Yeah, so that makes sense. When you, it's basically feeling like there's an imminent threat, right? Somebody is going to find out that I don't belong here. I'm an imposter. And this um, pushes your body in this flight, fight or freeze response. And it pumps all sorts of things to your body, adrenaline, cortisol. And it, it you know—it makes you basically like stand there and flutter and, and it's not very productive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something that you first have to kind of disengage from. You have to calm your nervous system down from and basically challenge your thoughts. Because imposter syndrome is something that's, you know, it's your mind um, giving you faulty messages uh, as to what your capabilities are. So first step would definitely be addressing this, seeing it as, you know, this this nervous system response, calming down your nervous system, and then challenging the thoughts that triggered this fight, flight or flight.
2: Maybe one of these messages we can kind of walk through as an example, because I don't know if you ever listen or read to uh, Mo Gaudat. He talks about the voice he has in his head. He's... calls her Becky (laughs) but it helps him disengage from when these ideas these thoughts that you know Becky is feeding into his brain are not helpful he can be like shut up Becky that's Mm -hmm. not true or this isn't helping me right now I'll come to this later I love this idea of kind of calling it out
3: absolutely using
2: the facts okay so no name on this message um saying hi both hoping to get some tips on curtailing my new job anxiety it's a step up uh, Few hours, but more money. So it's a no brainer, but I'm really nervous. New job, new place, new people. I'm too anxious to, um, to take it all in. Suffering from the dreaded imposter syndrome despite getting the job and definitely having the qualifications. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Oh, the first
1: day nerves. <laughs> It's so Oh, God. It is. Horrendous. It's awful. So there are two things, I think, that you can start by doing that are very efficient. Number one is be really honest and objective with your achievements. And if it's hard for you, if you can't really list all these things, you know, there's this I Am Remarkable incentive from Google where they make you list all the things you've ever achieved and then read them to other people. And other people are like, wow, this is amazing. You're normal if somebody else is amazing. So if you cannot, you know, come up with, with the, the amazing things that you've done to have that job, to achieve that job... Then ask somebody else, a loved one, uh, a sibling or a best friend or your, your significant other and let them write down all the things that you're amazing at because seeing it and, and hearing it from somebody else is really helpful. And the second thing is f- talk to people and find mentors who will open up about this feeling like an imposter because everybody does. It doesn't matter the position you're in. Having somebody in a higher position open up a mentor saying, well, you know, I have the same thoughts and I just choose not to listen to them. It's, it's just incredibly validating. I
2: think that's such a lovely idea about I Am Remarkable because we're so busy, we're so fast paced, you know, whether it is, you know, a goal, a job, a salary, a child, a weight, you know, whatever your, your goal is, when we get there we're often so quick to rush on to the next thing and don't actually acknowledge the joy and what we've achieved and everything, the hard work that's gone into it. We're just, you know, straight off. So a little daily list might be quite useful about what we've done. Um, A message um, here, no name on it, saying, is there a connection between having imposter syndrome and
1: being humble? I like this distinction. That's an interesting one. So it's actually two different things. Um, Humility comes from somehow the knowledge that we have limited capacities and that sometimes the situation is bigger than what we can, you know, deliver. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That's just the way it is. And, and you know, the more we know, the more we don't know. So being humble, usually people who are humble are people who know a lot of things, but they also understand the limits of their knowledge. Mm-hmm. We're not all powerful. Um, Imposter syndrome is the other way around. You have a lot of abilities, a lot of capabilities, but you underestimate yourself. I think anyone that hasn't got any humility about them is
2: not someone mm. not someone would want around the dinner table. So yeah, I think whereas imposter syndrome very very normal as we're coming to understand from you yeah. know you're talking there about how uh, this affects people in you know high achieving roles who have been well message here anonymous saying I'm a dentist. I can't help but feel I'm not good enough to be one. I was getting great grades all the way through uni, great GPA, but found it terribly hard finding a job because I never felt like I'll be capable to work. Afraid of making a mistake, always afraid I won't know something and don't know how to get out of this mentality. Would
1: you Mm -hmm. mind speaking to that? Yeah, isn't that interesting? So it sounds like somebody, you know, when when your own expectations for yourself are so high and so much higher than anybody else's, actually. Nobody would expect so much from you, but you have this constant weight of your own expectations, um, it would obviously take a little bit more time to kind of deep dive into where this came from. Is it from your upbringing? Is it from, um, you know, what kind of recurrent thoughts are going on in your head? Um, is, it, is it the environment? You know, is it from the inside, from the outside? And then you can kind of take it from there. But what's really, really helpful in those situations is really find a mentor and find somebody mm-hmm. to talk about it and to kind of um, guide you through it. Which leads me to a message here
2: saying, a question for your doctor, Um, how many sessions of coaching a client would usually be needed to work on something like imposter syndrome? How to contact? If you want to send me EQ on 4001, I will send you uh, Beatrice's details. But I guess, would you mind demystifying what happens in coaching? Because I feel like, you know, coaching is a phrase kind of covers all manner of sins and indeed qualifications. Mm. You know, there's an awful lot of people and I'm not going to name names, but they wouldn't be on my show who can stick coach in their Instagram bio and, you know, perhaps aren't actually qualified to be giving advice or indeed guiding someone through something quite complicated sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you're obviously a certified emotional intelligence coach. But for people who are like, actually, this is something I think is holding me back. Would you mind telling us about uh, maybe the process? How,
1: how, many, how, many, how many sessions and what might happen in them? So it's hard to say exactly because every person is different and depends on the problem. Some people are done in a session because they just needed that brainstorm and then they're gone. On average, five to six sessions... 10 is usually the maximum. It's not like therapy where you go for a long time because you have so much to work through. The goal of coaching is kind of to equip the person with the tools that they already have, but they kind of have to dig a bit deeper to find these tools. You already have everything in you. You have all the answers and all the keys. And a coach is just there kind of as a mirror to recognize patterns, you know, these thought, thought patterns that emerge and and to to make you recognize that you are capable, that you have these tools and then you're off on your own. You don't need a coach anymore. That's that's the point of coaching. You is set that them you, free. You set them free. Fly out of the coaching nest. <laughs> I always ask this with psychologists. I'm like, do, when do you ever say
2: you're fixed. Mm -hmm. Is it a bit like, you know, a a dry cleaner saying, you can just wash this at home. Mm -hmm. Um, Then that's very rarely the case. But I think in coaching is right, you know, you're doing that job well if they no longer need you. And they might might need you, you know, in a different situation or a different mindset in the future. Mm -hmm. But if you're addressing this initial thing, loads of people asking for details. But lastly, we've only got about 30 seconds left. Um, I just wanted to ask you for, I guess, your number one tip for addressing people's
1: mindset around imposter syndrome. Um, challenge it (laughs) so kind of separate yourself from that voice in your head um the voice in your head your thoughts are not a reflection of reality the you see the word through your your own um kind of flawed lens right so if we can kind of distance put a little bit of space between this this voice in our head our mindset and and the things that are actually happening and try to gather actual evidence Mm -hmm then we start to see, hey, I am qualified or, hey, you know, I have achieved a lot and I have actually overcome some pretty scary things. So there's no reason this is going to be different. Well said indeed. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Helen. Really, really interesting.
2: We are talking trend. We are sorting out your social media now with a fantastic Alexandra. She is a social media and kind of creative strategist. She's the founder of Alex's House of Social. She's an author, but also offers free courses on social media. She specializes in SME, but also consults to corporates too. She is a bundle of energy. And the most asked question is... Where do you get it from? How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm so excited to be back. I love having chats with you because I feel so kind of energised. I mean, you make everything feel possible. And I think that's um, it's a, it's a gift to be truthful. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, you give away an awful lot of your insights, your knowledge. Why, why for free? What's, what's the strategy there?
3: I always knew from the beginning, seven years ago, how the is going to be eight years this year? How incredible is that? I just knew from the beginning that if I give out all my secrets, if I give out everything, people are going to get to know me. They're going to trust me. They're going to see that there's no fluff, that this is real. Mm-hmm. And this is how people will then want to work with me. And if you don't work with me with my paid offerings, you still have so much value. Give everything you have and just believe in good karma that good things are going to come to you and be patient wow. it works eight years in
2: business suggests yeah. that is the case yeah um we i would love to talk a little bit about some trends for 2024 when it comes to social media now you are plugged in obviously for your own social but consulting to other people across a whole range of different industries and, and topics as well what have you identified as things we need to look out for in tech in social media for the year ahead?
3: Yeah. Okay. Especially even for small businesses, the first thing we all need to do is we need to understand that we need to start diversifying our content. We've all, all of us, we've gotten comfortable because it's hard. So once we crack a few formulas, we're like, yes, I'm going to stick with it, right? Because I've cracked it. It's taken so long. So we just get comfortable. What's happening in the landscape of social media right now is we're all getting so tired of the same content formats. How to do this, three steps to that, the same sort of stuff. So this there's this overall tiredness that we're all so over the same type of content. So first of all, we've got to get out of that comfortable vo- uh, box. We need to diversify our content formats. We need to try even new content pillars. So Such as what? Where? For example, I had never done a Get Ready With Me video. I had never done that because I never in my wildest dreams thought people would be interested in getting ready with me. Clothes, fashion, that's really not my niche. When I did it last year, it exploded. It went woof. And I was like, wow. So once we widen our niche, maybe hobbies that you have, maybe opinions and point of views that you have, or even tapping into a content trend that you had never tried before, you will unlock new opportunities that you might have not otherwise seen and explored that your audience wants. So diversifying your content is the number one thing. Do I go to my second one? Yeah. (laughs) Second one, we really need to choose our platforms wisely this year. Don't just be everywhere. Pick at least two. Be very focused. Understand what platforms are going to work for you. Third, emotional selling. We all sell an emotion. Yes, you might be selling a product, a bag, or a service, but what people connect with us for is with our emotions, is with feelings. How it makes you feel. If I am to ask you Helen oh, no. what is maybe one Don't of make your me cry. <laughs> If I was to ask you what is your favorite brand and you tell me and then I ask you the following question, why? I bet you 99% the answer you're going to give me is based on an emotion because it's make you feel a certain way. That's very true.
2: And that can be to do with making you feel confident, making you feel like you've had a positive interaction with the staff, knowing that you're supporting a small business, you know, all of that. Um, Riz is saying, can't you help me crack the algorithm?
3: <laughs> let's Let's make sure we know this once and for all. Let's just forget the algorithm. We cannot win this game. So what we really need to focus on is in our content game, is in our creativity, is really doing what we love. If you want to do a get ready with me video, do it. If you want to do a cooking video, do it. I want you to stay focused and really care about making content that is true to you, that matters to you. We will never be able to win this algorithm game.
2: So you might as well enjoy yourself in the meantime. Enjoy
3: yourself. I think
2: I think that's actually really <laughs> interesting cuz a lot of people that I feel like on social media, it all feels a bit labored and like, oh, I feel like I should be doing this or I should be jumping on this trend. And there's no sense of joy about it. And that that comes through. Um, we have got Alexander Meyer with us today from House of Social. We had a message on social saying, how do you avoid burnout as a creative small biz owner? We've also had questions about scaling up businesses in 2024. <laughs> Alex from House of Social here on hand to answer my questions and yours about social media strategy, about what's trending, how to spend your time, your energy, where to put your eyeballs in 2024. So organic reach versus paid reach. Alex, what are your predictions for the year ahead? Who's coming out on top?
3: Uh TikTok comes out on top. TikTok is pretty much the only platform right now that gives us amazing organic reach. And I'm telling you, TikTok is going 10x this year. They are aiming to become like one of the number one search engines.
2: So instead of people looking up on Google, they'll be looking for people, for products, for services on TikTok. Absolutely.
3: So if for everybody's listening, if you've not been taking TikTok serious, I swear you've been listening to me for a long time. I've been talking to you about TikTok. Stop looking at me like that. <laughs> <laughs> I am right. I'm like giving you big Hi. eyes. The organic reach is great. Post two to three times. Do it for 31 days straight. Talk to me. I'll tell you. I'll guarantee you at the end of that month, I have a free class where I teach how to repurpose content onto TikTok. Because you can't just put the same videos. It doesn't work that way. But you can make small tweaks.
2: Okay. Pre-course. So,
3: yeah.
2: Um, if you want details, you can just send me the word social um, and I'll send you Alex's details. Um, I love this because we're going to give some small business shout outs. This came to on social media. Artsy by M asking, oh, yes! how do you avoid burnout as a creative small biz owner?
3: first thing you need to start is self-awareness. You need to be so self-aware of what you need. So what is it that you need to reset? When are you at your most peak of creativity and also operational work. So self-awareness is our number one thing. Just before me and you were talking and you did ask me, hey Alex but do you reset? Of course I'm very aware of what I need to reset. Become very aware. So self-awareness is one second. Don't try to be on every single platform. Really understand pick two platforms that are going to be great for you in her case because she's an artist it will definitely be TikTok for her it could be Instagram as well and she will need to go so all in on those two platforms. So don't try to just be everywhere and be kind to yourself if you're doing this all on your own if you don't have a VA or a coach or a consultant be kind to yourself organize your week really well plan time what's my creativity i'm a creative too but i'm an operation i run my company so when do i when do i get creative when do i do operations when do i do client work so making sure that we become really good at planning our week mm. and our time well, i've just had a,
2: look, a little look at artsy by m on instagram Gorgeous account. Abstract fluid, fluid artist based in device. This is why it's worth getting in touch because you might get yes. a small business shout out. Uh, we've also had a message here um, through social media saying how to grow followers, getting good views on reels, but slow gaining followers. Join the club, Linda.
3: Yeah. Quite frankly. Let's, let's all create a club. It's happening <laughs> to everyone. It's happening across the board. So don't think that it's just you with your small page. It's even the big brands. Instagram, there's a huge organic reach decline, it's only going to continue. So what does that mean for us? It means two things. We need to start paying attention to paid, we need to start paying for our content to get out there. But let's not just keep pressing that boost button. If you follow me, you might have heard me talk about this analogy. Think of boosting like a fast food drive-in. Oh, you really want that donut and you really want that coffee. You're going to get a quick fix. When you boost, you only have one audience targeting option. When you run ads on your Facebook ads manager or even on your TikTok ads manager, we have so many more targeting options. So this year for many of us will be the first time that you will have to pay to get your content to be seen. But pay attention carefully to how you're going to do that. Second Get out of that comfortable zone. I know Instagram feels comfy, but we all need to learn this one thing. We have to go where the attention is. It's not if you like the platform or not. As marketeers, as entrepreneurs, as smart business people, we have to capitalize from where the the attention is. If the attention is on LinkedIn, if the attention is on TikTok, if the attention is on TikTok shorts, because TikTok shorts is huge right now as well, then we just have to go there. And that's it. That's the game we got to play. It's interesting, isn't it? Because
2: views do not equal followers or indeed leads a lot of the time. You can have a video that absolutely blows up, but it might not translate into
3: customers. 100%. I have 9,000 followers on my Instagram, Helen, but I'm I'm having a very successful business. Mm. See? So it doesn't always relate to those numbers to maybe having qualified leads right so let's not get also so obsessed about that number and am i providing value to my community either am i entertaining am i educating am i informing where am i in these pillars
2: Idris has been in touch saying, um, hi, guys, when should you get someone in to do your social media and when should you do it yourself?
3: ASAP. (laughs) That was (laughs) ASAP. I spent my first year of my business thinking that I was superwoman. I'm like, yes, I'm doing everything myself because I'm so good. No, I made mistakes. I almost lost a big gig with Max Factor in Saudi Arabia because I was so flustered. I sent a really rude email and I almost lost the project. And that's when I realized, hold on a second for you to really grow and scale, you can't do it on your own. Mm -hmm. So you need to start to get some support. Either it's a VA, either it's like someone like me, for example, a coach or a consultant, someone to edit your videos. However is the support you need, try to get it as soon as you can. It will be one of the best investments you'll do with your money because you need, we all need help. Don't look at me like that. Oh, no, no, I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) I was just
2: really... It's interesting because I get a lot of people message me going, oh, do you handle your own social media? Do Do you have an assistant? I'm like... Do I have an assistant? Are you joking?
3: <laughs> Yes, I edit my
2: own videos.
3: <laughs> but that's I'm but exhausted. maybe you love it and you say to me, Alex, I find so much joy in editing them and no. then it, Oh, okay. No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, that's not true. That's not true. I do I do enjoy yeah. I do enjoy it. We've had a number of people asking for your details. So I, I wanted to if you want to send me the word social, um, I will happily connect you with Alex a huge amount of resources on her website for if you are looking to upskill in twenty twenty four, you want to invest just like, you know, a couple of hours a week on boosting, you know what, which courses are doing well right now? What, what's resonating with people, Alex?
3: A uh, little bit of everything. There's a lot of paid media because obviously people are understanding that their content and are going anywhere. So I do run a lot of paid media for a lot of clients. Um, I mean, it's always the consultancy part. A lot of people just don't know. Like they know what they want and it's kind of like, how do I get there? Mm. So obviously my consultancy, my Rebel Club has been... It's closing in two, three days. and that's What's the Rebel Club? The Rebel Club is the most amazing marketing Rebel Club out there. Because unlike other membership clubs, mine includes one hour, one-on-one together every month for the amazing price of, are you ready? Yes. It's 390 dirhams a month. Oh, wow. You have one hour with me every month. You have group online classes. You have a WhatsApp group. You have a portal with exclusive content. We have meetups. Um, You even have access to like lawyers and finance people that you can have like free consultancy sessions with. And you know what's funny about my Marketing Rebel Club is that the first time I opened it, it didn't work out and I closed it. And then when I reopened it, it was so successful.
2: And do you find a lot of people connecting amongst themselves and that kind of... You know, yeah, organic growth and I guess support. I, yeah, You know, being a small business owner, a, company, I have a, a lot freelancer, people, really lonely sometimes. Yeah, I have a
3: lot of people on the group from Saudi, Europe, and one of the things they do, and here, of course, and one of the things they say is like, oh, it's so good to know that there's other people that are going through the same thing because mm. it is lonely. Even I find it to be lonely sometimes. So yeah, there's so much power in community.
2: We've run out of time. We haven't run out of questions, but I've had a lot of people asking a few details. If you want to send me the word social... 4001, Alex, I will hook you up. Okay, last, you've got literally 10 seconds. Number one bit of advice for smashing social media in 2024.
3: Go crazy. Go out of the box. Get oh. creative. Do something you've never done before. That's how you'll get the attention.
2: Don't get arrested. Alex, <laughs> yes, you're-, <laughs> <don't>. <laughs> you're a star. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> we're happy to connect
3: you with Alex if you do
2: want a bit of advice, inspiration, and yes, free information too. right now in conversation with Dr Imtiaz Hashmi, specialist orthopaedic surgeon at King's College Hospital, UK trained orthopaedic surgeon with over three decades of experience specialising in scoliosis, spinal pathologies and joint replacements. We had a number of messages for you, uh, Dr Imtiaz. How are you?
4: I'm absolutely fine. Good afternoon Drew. Good, you um, and your
2: thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. I know how busy you are over at King's and I wondered what is keeping you busy? What's coming into clinic right now when it comes to orthopedics?
4: Well, uh, because I'm dealing with spine and orthopedics both. So a lot of cases of spinal problems are presenting in my clinic and uh, King's College Hospital is obviously a well-known hospital for these kind of pathologies to be treated. And uh, so we get a lot of deformities, spine, spinal deformities, mm-hmm. chronic backs, disc prolapses. They, in common, people are aware of these words, so that's why I'm using them. And uh, uh, in elderly patients, we get spinal stenosis, which is tightening of the spinal canal, and they're having difficulty in walking and standing for longer periods and in orthopedics we have a lot of osteoarthritis mm-hmm. of the knee joint and the hip joints.
2: Um, I wanted to ask you because a lot of people get concerned about going to see a doctor such as yourself that it's going to mean immediate surgery that it's going to mean I'm going to have to go under the knife. How do you as a specialist orthopedic surgeon decide when someone needs surgery and what kind of steps can you take before someone gets to that point,
4: yeah. Uh, trust me, surgery is the last thing for doctors. Also, good. <laughs> uh, surgery is not the first choice, uh, and uh, unless it is indicated, life-threatening or limb-threatening situation, mm-hmm. uh, then obviously it is. It needs to be dealt within time so that it's never too late. But in majority of the cases, in spine and Uh, orthopedic cases surgery is the last option
2: thank you Um, that's very reassuring to hear
4: yeah uh, people people have this idea i agree with you that uh, the doctors are pushing surgery uh, in their normal practices but uh, i almost disagree completely for this because uh, the answer is we are not trying to push any patient into surgical intervention unless it is essentially needed
2: well i might come and see you about my knee because there's been a few people around town that want to get me on the table and we've had a question from nancy here saying when people talk about injections for knee pain what are they talking about and how does it help i've got osteoarthritis i'm 52 years old and otherwise healthy that's from nancy can you help so there are a couple of different injections you can have in your knee would you mind explaining what they might be and how they can help
4: Okay, there are a couple of injections starting, especially for the knee arthritis. Uh, You get intra-articular steroid injection with painkillers. You get uh, uh, some gel, commonly known as gel, in your knee joint due to osteoarthritis. Then there are other things coming up, is uh, PRPs and stem cells. Uh, They have the different indications. It's not... Yeah, unfortunately, it's like other fields also. When you have got a new hammer in your hand,
0: mm-hmm.
4: every problem seems to be a nail. <laughs> well so, said. So, uh, There are certain indications. Uh, steroids usually are given for elderly patients where the knee is absolutely uh, stage 4 osteoarthritic mm-hmm. uh, because... Of some some reasons they can't go through surgery. It is a temporary thing. Um, gel is not usually indicated for very advanced osteoarthritis. It is usually uh, for moderate, where the X-ray changes are not much, mm-hmm. but the symptoms are more. Okay. that's where it is indicated.
2: Um, a message here um, saying can osteoporosis or osteoarthritis? So two two different issues there. Be prevented. So, I mean, I know in, in women in particular, especially when you get to, you know, my age, 40s into 50s, 60s and beyond, um, you know, doing weight-bearing, you know, things that you can do to certainly delay osteoporosis. But what about osteoarthritis? Can that be prevented as such, doctor?
4: Well, osteoarthritis, who's going to get osteoarthritis is a very difficult answer question to be answered. Uh, but whoever gets it, or who has a family history, or uh, you know, has a more tendency towards osteoarthritis, the best thing one can do is keep your muscles toned up. Mm -hmm. Because as you get your osteoarthritis, it it definitely affects the tone of your muscles around that particular joint. Mm -hmm. So if you keep that toned up, uh, that's how you can delay the process but obviously, you cannot just omit it from your life if if it has to be done. Yeah, and I say,
2: yeah, if it's if it's in your. I mean, speaking personally, I'd also recommend not being forty kilos overweight. You know, losing losing weight's helped me hugely, but I've still. Got osteoarthritis in my knees, um, so I wanted to ask you a question that's coming from Grant, and we've only got we've only got a minute. I'm afraid, Doctor Charles, saying my wife slipped a disc over the weekend, and despite a shopping bag full of meds, she's in agony. Um, is heat or cold useful? And he's asking how about a tens machine? So slip disc, ouch! Uh, the meds aren't touching the pain. Are there any other techniques? Anything that um, would be useful for Grant's wife?
4: Okay, just a general. Point uh, for disc prolapse, first six weeks, unless there's a weakness in the foot, nobody uh, suggests any surgical intervention, okay? So pain in 80% of the people, they get better within six weeks, okay? 20% are stuck with the pain, but it doesn't mean 20% needs surgical intervention. Now, uh, TENS machine, physiotherapy, painkillers, They are all to reduce the inflammation to, you know, uh, the muscles go into reactive spasm because of a disc prolapse that can change the posture of the patient. So, uh, yes, TENS machine can help with all the other modalities of physiotherapy.
2: Thank you so, Uh, so much. I really hope that helps, Grant. I'm so sorry we've run out of time, doctor, but you are there at King's. Um, There were a number of messages we couldn't get to today. So if anyone wants to send me the word doctor with your permission, doctor, I'd be happy to share your details so people can seek out some one-on-one time and attention and expertise. Thank you so much. Get back to clinic. Thank you. I know how busy you are. Dr. Imtiaz Hashmi speaking to us from King's College Hospital Specialist Orthopaedic Surgeon.
0: This content is for informational purposes only and is not intend to substitute professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.
2: Celebrating inspirational people this hour and His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, Vice President and Rule of Dubai, has introduced the Great Arab Minds Awards. It's known as the Arab version of the Nobel Awards, two remarkable individuals. And the recipient for medicine is Cleveland Clinic's Dr. Hani Najm, a Saudi national who has been recognised for his role in creating innovative surgeries and complex heart conditions. Now, he has completed more than 10,000 surgeries on newborns, children and adults. And he joins us now. Congratulations, doctor. How are you?
5: Uh, I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, thank you for, my goodness, making time for us. And second of all, for the incredible work you've been doing there at Cleveland Clinic. Can I, before we talk about the award, I want to know why did you want to work in medicine and why this area in particular?
5: Uh, As I uh, was a growing young man, I've always was inspired to become a doctor. And my family, my mother actually wanted me to be so. And very quickly as I started medicine, I felt that I do have some technical skills and I like to work with my hands. So I uh, immediately embarked on being a surgeon. And very quickly after I became a surgeon or wanted to become a surgeon, I went into the uh, operating room of one of the heart surgery uh, cases and very quickly saw this incredible, amazing specialty where we could actually stop the heart, fix the heart, so all of a sudden the patient is on, a, on an extracorporeal, or what we call out-of-the-body out, out of the body circulation, effectively work on the heart, fix the heart, and then resume the circulation. An amazing concept then for me, and I totally embarked on, on, on that, and I've, I've loved it since then. And what happened is when I also started heart surgery, I was... Uh, basically, uh, uh, loving being or doing uh, innovative surgery mm-hmm. as in what we see in congenital heart surgery. So it's a process that I went through from uh, wanting to become a doctor, wanting to become a surgeon, wanting to become a heart surgeon, wanting to become a congenital heart surgeon for defects that are uh, that are uh, affecting babies when they're born or they can be actually manifesting later on in life well so this is how the process that has come through
2: it's just incredible i mean when we think about life-changing life-saving jobs i mean heart surgeon has to be has to be top of the list you know what or who do you think makes a good surgeon are there any particular obviously the skills are required but what about personality traits what about
5: uh you know what have you seen over question. the years I, I have to say uh, the, the, a good heart surgeon has to have, obviously, the surgical skills. So you got to have to have the hand-eye movement, the small movements in the fingers. Uh, it's all about training also, mm-hmm. the being able to do that many of them, just like anything we do, like sports, like whatever you do in life. You need to spend the 10,000 hours. I was just about to profession.
2: say the Gladwell formula. So Absolutely, you probably earn far exactly. more than 10,000 hours though. My gosh. Um, you
5: have to do this. You don't do that. You be, cannot become a profession.
6: Mm-hmm.
5: And that's what I did earlier in my life. I was doing what, as much as I can uh, in my, my training, in my uh, earlier life as, as a, a young surgeon. Uh, I wanted to do this. The other other um, uh, traits of a successful surgeon is a, a being uh, innovative, mm-hmm. uh, being uh, persuasive, uh, integrity, mm-hmm. which obviously applies to many other professions. But these are traits that a successful surgeon is, needs to do. And and one thing that I would always say to younger surgeons is that. You have to be focused on what you want to do in life because, yes, everybody wants to make a good living and a better income, but it cannot be if you are going to advance your professional life. If you're going to run for just making more money, it is not going to be that uh, uh, that um, life or that uh, career mm-hmm. that's going to make you a better surgeon you got to focus you got to focus in your specialty you cannot be spread thin between different hospitals trying to do different clinics and operate in multiple hospitals and so on so being focused on what you want to do and what you want to be later on in your life the
2: deep work i've got two very quick questions and then in a few minutes i want to ask you some big questions but um my brother's a drummer and his hands are insured and i wondered as a surgeon are your hands insured
5: uh, my practice in general is insured, <laughs> And I have to say, I have been like, let's say, I, I, I do a lot of sports. I don't know if you know about me. I have I've, I've used to be a, a champion of taekwondo, black belt, 5'10". I was the champion of Saudi Arabia for three years in a row. But what I do, I don't, let's say, play uh, volleyball or basketball because I don't want to injure my my hands. Uh, I I I am very conservative on anything that could uh, allow uh, any injuries to my hand. But my entire practice is, <laughs> and I curious. think <laughs> it is it, it is it is actually interesting. And a lot of people told me you should do that, mm-hmm. but it's I have to say it's not only the technical skills, it's mm-hmm. the ability to take the right decisions.
2: Well, we are in Uh, conversation now with Dr. Najim, and we're going to be talking next about, well, what he's well known for, working on a fetus still in the womb. He has completed more than 10,000 surgeries and is recipient of what's being called the Arab version of the Nobel Awards, the great Arab minds. He got that for medicine. Joining us now is Cleveland Clinic's Dr. Hani Najim. He is recipient of the Medicine Award as part of the Great Arab Minds Awards. It's the Arab version of the Nobel Prize and he is on hand as we talk about his life as a heart surgeon and some of the incredible work you've done. Some questions coming in for you as well. Um, Skylar wants to know if you listen to music when you're performing operations. That's a great question. What's happening in the operating room? Uh,
5: yes, I do, as a matter of fact. And it's quite relaxing and that's important i i look at surgery as really conducting an orchestra they everybody has to be in in harmony of how we how you uh conduct this operation because first of all we do something called huddle this huddle is before the surgery before we even bring the patient into the operating room where i share with the entire team that is the anesthetist the nurses the perfusionists, so these people who are uh, taking care of the heart-lung machine, and my assistants also, what am I going to do during that surgery? So we're mm-hmm. going to fix this. This is the patient who was born with that, and this is how we're going to p- conduct the operation. Then we start the operation, bring the patient in, and so on. And uh, typically, uh, myself and my scrub nurse would know exactly, she would know or he would know, my uh, techniques of how we conduct the operations. The first part and the last part of the operation is very similar between all the heart surgeries operations, which is like opening the chest, converting the circulation at the, the, uh, the uh, uh, heart lung machine, the artificial heart lung machine, and then stopping the heart and fixing the heart on the inside. So we need to make sure that all the required materials are available in the operating room as well as the uh, sequence of surgery is being uh, briefed by everyone so they know the expectation. And also the same thing uh, coming out of uh, mm-hmm. uh, surgery. So it is a, a, a conduct of what should be, if there's any chaos in the operating room, in a heart surgical operating room, this is bad news. Mm-hmm. Even in the worst stressful situations, and there are a lot of them. You see that about heart surgery, heart surgery is quite rewarding because it's, you get an immediate effect when you fix the heart, but having said that, also things can go wrong very quickly mm-hmm. when you're dealing with major vessels or dealing with the heart that is pumping five liters a minute, or if you're dealing with a baby, heart that is only three kilograms, the, the, uh, the size of the heart is, is, is hardly a uh, uh, two or three centimeters in, in, in size. So, But you're talking about delicacy, but efficiency. You're talking about accuracy. You're talking about precision uh, and quick responses in the operating room. So you cannot have uh, uh, chaos. You cannot have panic. No, you cannot have no, cool no. Head so at that's all how times.
2: that must be something that's that good. comes with years of experience and i don't want to give away any ages but you've been doing this a long time ten thousand surgeries how is that possible are there days where you're doing multiple surgeries do you ever take a day's holiday how how has that worked out over the span of your career doctor
5: so what happens is uh yes you can you do more than one surgery a day and i've on certain occasions i have done five surgeries a day where i've had uh, uh, two operating rooms, sometimes three operating rooms lined up where uh, the first patient starts at 7 o'clock and then I do this, the repair, then I move the second patient would be asleep in the second room and so on and so forth so, so I move from one room to the other. Uh, but this only happens in advanced heart centers mm-hmm. where you have teams that can do, as I said a few minutes ago, there are some uh, duplication of the simpler beginning and end of the procedure. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I do obviously the critical parts of the operation, which is the repair itself. You go
2: in with the golden so hands. how it is. <laughs>
5: um,
2: Rufus has been in touch with well, the question yeah. saying, how do you handle the emotional and psychological aspects of being a surgeon, including dealing with those challenging situations and, and patient outcomes? What about that emotional side?
5: Well, uh, trust me, you have to have really guts, strengths, Inner strength, but at the same time, you have to have compassion to deal with also the families. So, uh, you uh, surgical practice in many ca- many cases, they consider it as like military practice because we are we're sharp, we're right on the point, we're decisive because you cannot be wandering around and not being making decisions because that there's a, there's a patient life in your hands. And decisions can, has to be taken sometimes in a fraction of a second. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, if you don't react the right thing, you actually can have a, an, an unwanted effect. So you have to have that uh, assertiveness. You have to have that strength to do this. But at the same time, you have to be compassionate, not only with the family of the patient, but also to your team. Uh, they are supporting you because these these are the people who are going to help you in times when, Tough when when when, uh, when 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 it's tough. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm saying uh, it, it is a, a it takes time to command this. Uh, but and and there's probably some um, um, some stuff that we're born with, mm-hmm. and some of it is acquired. Yeah. But I think a lot of it is determination to become the best in the world, and that is how we see ourselves this is how I see myself. And that's what I always told my younger surgeons and the younger people is that people are gonna see you through your eye. What do you what do you what do you look at yourself when you look at yourself in the mirror? How do you think yourself? Do you want to be actually the best in the world? You know you're be the best in your specialty or not? If you're gonna always think that somebody else is better than you, think about it. Because that is gonna reflect on how you behave. That is going to reflect on how You act and where are you going to be in 20 years in your practice? I
2: think you need to do a podcast of pep talks, get everyone ready for the day ahead. Dr. Najm, I think thank you so much for sharing your insights and your obvious passion. I mean, no grit, no pearl. And I think you're an incredible example of that. Huge congratulations again for being the recipient of the Medicine Award in the Great Arab Minds um, presented there by His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Maktoum. Um, and congratulations. I hope you do manage to unwind and relax because it sounds like you deserve it. But, you know, from operating on a fetus still inside the womb to countless, countless hours in the operating room um, Thank you. Uh, It's incredible to to speak to you and uh, we'll hopefully catch up soon indeed. Dr. Najim speaking to us from Cleveland Clinic um, there in the States. We're celebrating diversity in Dubai in the most beautiful aesthetic way I think I've ever seen. Uh, Joining us are the co-creators of a brand new book called Dubai Is My Home. Olivia and Marie-Jean with us in the studio. One writer... One photographer, Olivia, studied international penal law and art history in Paris before moving to the States. She's a photojournalist focusing on women's fates during conflict. And she works with French and foreign magazines and Marie-Jean studied French literature. Uh, Her PhD was on literary hoaxes. This is what I want to read in the 17th century. She's worked in publishing for decades um, here in the UAE and beyond. Both, thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, The book is absolutely beautiful, as I would expect. Um Marie-Juan, I'd love to start with you in terms mm-hmm. of where the idea came from to bring together the faces, the stories, the heart of the city in one.
0: Well, thank you for having us. Pleasure. And uh, thank you for mentioning the heart of the city, because I'd like to think this is exactly what we wanted to show the heart and soul of the city. So Olivia and I met here in uh, in Dubai. And we both had, uh, Olivia, a bit more advanced than I did, uh, the project of showing the, a different Dubai, the Dubai that we live every day, not the Dubai that is shown, but the the, the Dubai that you live when you walk around town and you meet the people. And um, uh, since I moved here, I always wanted to tell that story, but I didn't know how to pinpoint it and go forward with it Mm -hmm. and by meeting Olivia who had uh, a project of a photo book about Dubai and the two unborn project got you know mixed up and uh, went uh, forward together and it was just the best I mean really best uh, collaboration yes
2: Olivia can I ask you about why this was important to you to communicate this I don't want to say alternative side of the I because it's not because it's, the, it's mm-hmm. very much the reality for you know so many people living here but what perceptions did you want to address
6: Um, I think it was more about uh, addressing the Western medias who always have like this... Daily mail. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not only. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so the idea was I've been um, in the position of defending Dubai for 12 years now. And so I guess the best way to do it is to do it how I know how to do it. To show them. To show them.
2: So when, I mean, the the portraits in the book are absolutely... Beautiful. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, first of all, marie about the the curated side of how you chose people that you wanted to feature. How many people are in there and what was the selection process like?
0: So we have 40 portraits in total. We could have gone on forever sure. and do 300 of them, but then, you know, it's... <laughs> um, so the selection, we're trying to have the city come to us instead of uh, pick and choose. And Let's say we try to avoid a certain kind of people, not because they're not featureable, not interesting, but because they have been featured many, many times. So we try to avoid the, the, the famous, the you know, the Dubai Fortune 500. This is absolutely not the scope of this book. We try to put the focus on the normal people, the normalcy and the mundane and the everyday life. Mm-hmm. So this is how we chose them. And then after a little while, of course, it's a game of puzzle. So you realize you have people from this and that part of the world, of this and that generation, of this and that language, and maybe we should show more of this or that area. So you get not a full spectrum of Dubai, but the largest, you know, we could.
2: I think that's really powerful. I'm not talking about shunning people who've got their time in the spotlight or they've had the, you know, the covers of the magazines, Mm -hmm. but to realize that there is magic and, you know, you said the word mundane there, but, you know, in in those details and that minutiae and... Understanding and I, I believe this in life wherever you are and whatever you do. But you can learn something from absolutely everybody you mm. meet. So, what were some of the questions you were asking, and what did you kind of uncover about the city or about people along the way?
0: Well, I uncovered so much, and uh, both Olivia and I have been long-term residents. Uh, Olivia a bit longer than me, and we pride ourselves on being, you know, open and curious. But this project took my curiosity to another level. You know, so many layers and so many communities. So many people I, you know, I knew nothing about, and the questions we asked were, was more to focus not on their own story but on their story with Dubai. It's like, tell me your love story, why you came here, why you stayed, and um, mostly, and what happened if you had to go back and travel again. You know, the the, the real story that links you to this city.
2: Um, Olivia, the photos are of course beautiful and revealing and. Real. What was it like to ask people who perhaps A, had never posed for photos <laughs> before yeah. and B, for you to get to the essence of them as a person, to, to really tie in with the theme of the book of diversity of,
6: of realness. How do you do that? So we had our little tricks, <laughs> which was to meet them both together at the same time and ask them where they want to be photographed. So it had to be a place that they dear hold, that have a meaning for them, that they like. So first, so that was a first, um, first way of knowing something about them. Go on. So where did it take you? And, because that's, that's a very revealing question
2: as well, in terms of what is the context you want to place yourself in? Where were some of the locations that were
6: chosen? Um, well the desert, um, sea, beach, um, my first house in Dubai, uh, where I used to bring my kids to uh, the playground, uh, where I work, sometimes, of course.. Um, most of the time not at home Mm -hmm. and that was very interesting and then the thing was that Mary Jane would interview the person I would be around staying quiet but then I would learn from them and of course as you said like they're not most of them are not used to be photographed like professionally you know with like bulky equipment and flash and stuff so it was um, more reportage For them, it was just like a little bit intimidating, probably. Mm. But um, I think we're like two nice old ladies, so
0: (laughs) it it worked out.
2: Far from it, old. Um, The book itself is, as I said, aesthetically stunning. And it's come together and it's a a real (laughs) celebration. I mean, from, you know, the design to to the content. What, What would you love for it? I guess when you put it out into the world, where would you love it to end up? The hands, the homes, the as you say kind of come up against some of the attitudes what's the goal
0: well you know it was it's a very simple idea a very simple project at the at the beginning just we didn't invent anything but right now now that's here we would love it to become like the go-to gift or staple to every home here because it's a way to as olivia said at the beginning to Mm -hmm. show what we live when we live here to show what the city is really about and to you know, to give that around you and to give it to people who come and visit, people who leave Dubai after, you know, having been Dubai resident for many years, people passing by, people who regret having lived in Dubai before, people who've never been in Dubai. It works for everyone. And what did you learn when we were you asking some of those questions, some of those themes about
2: what is it about the city that gets under the skin of people who have been here for a long time? Were there any patterns, any answers that came up time and time again? Well, Olivia, I'll, I'll come to you first if you have because I can see you nodding along. <laughs> yeah.
6: Yeah. I think the common point is they're having a better life here than they would have at home or at their first home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of them, as you said, they're like uh, real people so they don't have an easy life. Uh, but I think they get rewarded by... Uh, you know, working hard and they're happy that their kids probably go to like international schools, speak better English than they do. Probably had food from
2: all over the world at age five and like <laughs> 35, like most of us. And I think, yeah, I think it is. It's that idea of connection and redefining our idea of home
0: and roots Yeah, and what it can look that, like. Yeah, that's what I would have said. You know, the, the title Dubai is my home was the thing we just came up with at the beginning. But to our surprise, this is something all the persons we interviewed came back with uh, in our conversation, saying, yeah, I might, I'll never get the nationality, of course. Uh, my kids might move and I might move, but Dubai is my home. It's the difference you do um, feel between your roots, where you were born or where you come from, and the home you make. I think so they beautiful. all, yeah, they all have roots back home and they don't feel at home when they go there, but they're still attached. Yeah. And their home is very... It's complicated. S- yes, it's very delicate. It's mm-hmm. not, so- it's subtle. It's not black and white.
2: Well, I think it's a really worthy topic for exploration and you've done it in such a beautiful way. So huge congratulations. Um, so I've had a couple of people saying
6: the book is called Dubai is My Home. <laughs> it is new. Uh, where can people find it, Olivia? Um, at Magrudy's, at Kino Knuya, um at Arjamil, and I think uh, all the different bookstores coming soon as well. Tell you what, it'll make it even easier. If you send me
2: the word book, I will get a link from the ladies and we'll find a way of getting into your home and your hands as well. Huge congratulations on the publication. I've got a feeling this is not going to be the last mm. to buy us our <laughs> home because, you know, the, ch- the city is so ever- ever-changing and evolving. Yeah. There's always a new story to tell and a new portrait to take. So thank you so, so much, uh, Marijan and Olivia speaking to us. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe, you'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5pm.
0: You've been listening to a Dubai I 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.